Good morning. We're going to start today um, with the way that I think every good gathering should start, and it's with a story. Once upon a time, there was a huge family of children, and they were terribly, terribly naughty. In those days, mothers and fathers used to have much larger families than they do now, and those families often were naughty. The mothers and fathers had to have all sorts of nurses and nannies and governesses. This family I'm telling you about seemed to have more children and naughtier children than any other. There were so many of them, I shan't even tell you their names, but I should leave you to sort them out as you go along and just add up how many there were. Even their parents had to think of them in groups. There were the big ones, the middling ones, and the little ones, and the baby. And the baby was really a splendid character. It had fat, bent legs, and its nappy was always falling down round its fat pink knees. But it kept up with the other children to the last ounce of its strength, and it talked a curious language all of its own. There was also the tiny baby, but it was so small, it couldn't be naughty. So it was really dull, and we needn't count it. And the children had two dogs. They were dachshunds. One was a golden brown, and the other one was tiny and black. And the naughtiness of these children was almost past believing. Well, we studied a passage of scripture this week that is going to tell us to be like obedient children. And honestly, you guys, I know more about the variety of children that I just read to you in a book that was an old British book called Nurse Matilda than I actually do about the obedient kind. Because you see, I've got six under 14, and get this, We have a dog that could be giving birth, like, right now while I'm here. (laughs) So I may be going home to a house full of puppies, and we are praying that there will be at least six so nobody fights over them. (laughs) I am not a scholar, but I'm a student. And the class that I'm taking right now is called Children 101. And... I'm going to make some observations with you today about what children are like. So let's go to God's Word, and let's open up to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. So what are obedient children like? Obedient children end up loving what their parents love. 
Now, up on this screen is going to come a picture I just took last week, two weeks ago during homecoming week. And um, the high schoolers had to dress up with their favorite sports team. And the middle schoolers had to dress up um, as someone out from outer space, right? And so my two girls, um, this is what they wore to homecoming week. Seely is dressed in Tennessee orange, and Francie has her dad's Star Wars shirt on. And they're, they're actually both wearing their dad's clothes. Um, so here's the deal. I went to Auburn, and my team has won way more games in the past 14 years that Seely's been alive. But let me tell you, the love for Tennessee runs so deep in my household because they love what their daddy loves. They know that what matters to him, and they know what brings him joy, and they also know that if Tennessee wins, he will take them and every kid in the neighborhood in our van to go get treats. So they adore what he loves. You know what? I have never seen a Star Wars movie. They know that if a new one comes out, their dad will take everybody to the movie theater to go see the movies. And so they know and have learned, like, we love Star Wars. Um, And so here are these two girls decked out in their daddy's clothes because his loves have been contagious in our home. Um, in, in our passage, it says, Obedient children are not to be conformed to the passions of their former ignorance, meaning they're not to be shaped by the old loves. They're not to be conformed. Um, we've been ransomed from those futile things. We, like obedient children, get to shape the loves and the passions of our lives to the loves of our adopted dad since he's brought us into his family and those those old appetites those old passions were misdirected and it reminds me of the passage in the lion the witch and the wardrobe c.s lewis's book where the white witch wants to seduce edmund into betraying his siblings and she gives him the enchanted turkish delight And only later does he learn, and I'll quote, anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it and would, even if they were allowed, go on eating it till they'd killed themselves. Um, Those were the passions and loves of our former appetites. They're not good for us. And our Father is going to reshape us, and he's going to reshape us to give us loves for the things that he loves. Okay, so what are obedient children like? Obedient children then begin to resemble their father. In our passage this week, we read, He who calls you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, I have a favorite author. Her name is Lauren Winner. She teaches right now at Duke, in the Duke Divinity School. She used to live up in New York City, and um, I really like the way she writes. And she 
wrote in a book called Wearing God about spending time with God like you might spend time with your grandmother who, after a long time away, that you might be going to spend time with, but you've really been ignoring her for a while. And this is what she says. It was kind of hard to visit her. I felt like I should like my grandmother, but in fact, sometimes I felt like I didn't like her very much. I felt like I should feel guilty about this, but I didn't feel much guilt. She was a little scary. I didn't know how to become close to her. I thought, I still think that it disappointed her. Yet, spending time with her was sometimes surprising and wonderful. Once there was rum cake, once there was real connection, once or twice I felt my grandmother understood me better than anyone else could. Once she and I danced in my father's living room. Now I'm older and I do like to visit her. It's a sad, great pleasure to go to her grave, which is 200 yards outside of Asheville, North Carolina. Be holy because God is holy. Guys, let's be honest about this verse, okay? When I encounter verses like this, it kind of makes me feel like visiting a grandmother as well. I better put on some clean clothes, get my externals kind of spruced up, um, put on some good deeds, some good conduct. But I just can't shake the feeling, just like Lauren, that my best is going to disappoint. I don't know what you carry into this room. And I don't know what you carry into the room when you go to visit God. But let's look deeper. Let's be women who look deep. And let's go deep into what this big, mysterious word, holy, actually means. When Leonardo da Vinci painted his famous Last Supper, he didn't have difficulty with it till he got to the faces, which, as an artist, I understand. There are certain parts of a painting that are always the most difficult to put in. He, then he went through each face, and he put them in, and then he got to Jesus' face. And he kept holding off and holding off, and he was unwilling to approach it, knowing that he must. And then he finally just painted in quickly, and he let it go. He said, there's no use. I just can't paint him. Well, there's a sense in the word holiness that is the same for me. Because this word is so deep, and it is so big, and it is such a special part of God that it's hard for me to paint a likeness of him with my words. R.C. Sproul reminds us that only once in Scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says God is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says he's love, love, love. Never mercy, 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 justice, 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 wrath, wrath, wrath. It does say that he's holy, 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 and the whole earth is filled with his glory. So what is holiness? Holiness means to be set apart. He is absolute, set apart, and separated from evil, meaning that he is totally separate from that which breaks, corrupts, damages. He doesn't hurt 
damage or break like the rest of this broken world does. There's no one else like him. There is no one good, no, not one. And so I want you to think of this word holy as the great otherness of God. Because I think in church, we can become numb to the word. It's a churchy word. And sometimes we lose the heart of it. God is other. There is no one like him. Holiness is his otherness. And we actually, instead of feeling intimidated or put off, we can actually be comforted by this holiness. Because it actually means he doesn't sin. It is not in his nature to maim, corrupt, gossip, break down, or delight in the slander of. All those things that are so painful and damaging about what it means to be a human. He hates that which hurts his kids. Holiness means that he is opposed to that which damages human beings. And instead of making me feel scared to go visit him, it actually makes me feel safe. So we have to ask this question, is it possible then for God to compromise his holy character to be okay with me? Well, no, because he hates that which damages or hurts his children. And if that was the end of the story, we'd be devastated. But because of death and payment and the ransom we studied this week, we are able to come near. And I have been, in the past couple weeks, absolutely stunned by something that Cole Huffman said in a sermon a couple, couple weeks ago. It has haunted me. You know what he said? There is nothing about me that bothers God when I'm in his presence because I am in Christ. Let me say it again. There's nothing about you that bothers God when you're in his presence because of Jesus. So let's look further into 1 Peter. Be holy, because I'm holy. This is actually a quote from Leviticus 19.1. The Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the whole congregation of the Israelites and tell them you must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. We have to ask ourselves the question, hold on here. Is God telling me to be perfect without sin? Because he's perfect without sin? Is holiness possible? We've got to contrast this with other places in Scripture. Revelation 15.4 You alone are holy. 1 Samuel 2.2 There is none holy like the Lord. So what is he telling us to be in 1 Peter? Well, if if you think back to what I just talked about in the great otherness of God, he is telling us to be other. Just as God is set apart, we are to be the definition of holy, which means set apart. Shortly after God made Israel his nation in the Old Testament, 
he told them, you're going to be a kingdom for me of, of priests, and you're going to be a holy nation, a separated, set-apart other group of people that's going to be different from any other. And then on the New Testament side of things, he has a parallel verse, and we're actually going to study it in the next couple of weeks. He says, you're going to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people from my own possession. You're to be set apart. And all through scripture, we see that he calls things holy. There were, there's a day that's holy. The Sabbath day is to be an other kind of day. There were holy bowls that were used in the temple. These were other bowls, holy vessels, holy oil. They were all distinct, and they were different from that which was ordinary and used for every day. So we, God is calling us here to resemble him in his otherness and his set-apartness. And this holiness for us is about consecration or purpose. And the holy things that were in the sanctuary were holy because they were dedicated to God. Nobody drank out of the sacred vessels except the priests. And nobody used that knife except for that sacrifice. Nothing was laid upon the altar except that which was consecrated to the Lord for that holy purpose. And it's got to be so with us. We must belong to him. We must see in our life that our purpose is distinct and different and, and, and headed in a different way now that we have been ransomed by him. And this holiness also is all-encompassing. If you go back to that First Peter verse, we see that he says, Be holy in all your conduct. Now, at first reading, that makes me feel a little bit nervous because it reminds me of your conduct grades you got in elementary school. <laughs> you either got an E, an S, or an N. There's a much deeper sense when you go to the Greek of this phrase. And all your conduct actually means every part of your life. Every part of your life is now holy. And so, as women, there's a lot of our days that are spent in the grunt work and the not very glamorous parts of caring for others and of getting things done. Do you guys realize that all of that is your holy, set-apart work that God has given you to do? Every part And so, I believe Charles Spurgeon, great pastor in the 1800s, says it best when he says, at the temple, the outer courts and the promenades outside the walls and the slopes of the hill, and every single part that had to do with the mountain, which the temple was on, all of it was holy. From which I gather that in the church of God, It's not merely her ministers who are holy, but it's her common members. It's not her sacraments, but it's her ordinary meals. It's not her Sabbaths, but it's her work days. It's the 18 loads of laundry that happen in my house on Mondays. 
It's not only her worship, but it's her daily labor. All that surrounds our consecrated life is consecrated too. Whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we are to do all in the name of the Lord. And so the pots and the bowls of our kitchens are to be as truly sacred women as the golden vessels upon which the priest served the altar. Holiness is far-reaching and covers the whole ground of our life. And third, holiness is about the heart. And the church of God is not just good in name only, but really pure. We must be right before God and have clean insides. And our lives must be such that observers might peep within our doors and see nothing for which to blame us. Our cleanliness inside is not to be that of a bad housewife who sweeps dirt under the mats. And if you open the cupboards, you'd find rottenness within. So we resemble God the Father through our consecration, through our all-encompassing holiness, and through our cleanliness. And we get to be other. We're really distinct. I went to my class reunion this weekend, and I had a sense that it really, really is different to be a believer. And I hadn't been around, you know, probably so much paganness in a while, and I came away and thought, I am encouraged, even though I see all the flaws in my own life, but I know that as believers, we do look different from the world. And when we resemble our Father and want to obey Him, we're following His good plan for mankind. And I think about obedience when we're obedient children as, have you ever gotten a beautiful calligraphied wedding invitation in the mail? And that calligrapher has obeyed the plan for every one of the strokes in every one of the letters. And see, when each, each letter is obeyed, then you have the most beautiful calligraphy. Or I think about obedience like a beautiful a cappella piece. Because each person who's keeping their part and is staying on pitch and on note has obeyed the composer's plan. And so the result is something really, really beautiful that can't happen if somebody has decided they want to um, make up their own tune. Um, but, let's, but again, let's be honest here. When I was in middle school, I was really into this Christian fiction series called the Christy Miller books. Did anybody ever read them? I checked them out from the library downstairs, and my mom can testify that after reading one of them, I threw the book across the room, and I said, there are no boys like this on earth, (laughs) so why am I reading about them? There will never be Christian boys like this, and I, and aside, there are, and 
the Lord was doing his own work in his life to get him ready for me, right? But, but when I come to passages about the cleanliness in one's heart and obedience, sometimes I want to throw something across the room because I, um, I see my own faults and I see my own inability to obey. And I, I, when I first started to walk with Jesus, I was at Auburn, and I asked to meet with a pastor, and we went, and I can picture the coffee shop we were sitting right now. And I told him, I have a really, really bad problem. Because you see, I've just now started to walk with the Lord, and now I love his word. But here's the problem. I am getting worse and worse. And I thought I was supposed to be getting better. And he said, oh, no, no, no. This is actually a wonderful problem because, you see, when you grow in the Lord and you get closer to him, you're actually begin, You're going to see how bad you really are. And it's only going to get worse from here <laughs> because you're going to hold yourself up to that which is um, the ultimate in perfection. And as we grow, we're going to see him for who he is. And we're going to see ourselves for who we really are. Um, but our, my next point is what gives me hope. And I hope it does for you too. Because you see, obedient children know their dad's name. And in this one name, we see that From God, holiness is a gift. In Exodus 31, 13, there's the first mention of the name Yahweh Medikashem. And this name is the name of God that means, I am the Lord who sanctifies you, or I am the Lord who makes you holy. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, but as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, you shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. I am Jehovah Medikashem. In in the Old Testament, there are at least 10 references to this name of God. And in Leviticus, which is the book that is dedicated to explaining God's holiness, over and over and over, he says, I am the one who does the work. I am the one who makes you holy. I am the one that is doing this. Surrender to me. I'm the one who's working in your life. So this being made holy or sanctification does not primarily mean perfection. Instead, it refers to separation. And the separation from sin that is now the direction of our lives. And someday, it will be separation from all of sin's pull and sin's pleasure. And sanctification is both an event and a lifelong process. 
And it should never be confused with the false standards of holiness that were adopted by those who, like the Pharisees, attempted to be holy on the outside only. Jehovah Medicashem. He reminds me of another storybook character. From C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The scene starts with Eustace, who's a rotten boy. And he's found himself in possession of a large fortune. And he imagines the life he's going to enjoy and the comforts he's going to have. And he falls asleep with his treasure. And when he awakes, Eustace is no longer a dragon. I mean, he's no longer a boy, but he's a dragon now. And the dragon is the outward manifestation of his inward greed and selfishness. And that gold bracelet from the treasure that he put on his arm is now, it is now cutting off the circulation in his dragon leg. And the physical pain is mingled with the emotional pain of knowing that he's cut off from humanity and he begins to cry big dragon tears. And then in mercy and compassion, Aslan arrives, and he leads dragoned Eustace to the top of a garden on top of a mountain and then to a well in the center of the garden. And Eustace looks at the well, and he knows, if I could just get in the water, the pain in my leg will go away. But Aslan says, well, you're going to have to be undressed first. And then Eustace remembers, oh, Dragons are like snakes. They have layers. We can peel off the skin. So he has these claws, and he begins to tear off his dragon skin. And he peels off one layer, only to discover there's another nasty, scaly, rough layer underneath. And then another. And after three layers, he realizes it's in vain. He will never make himself clean or get rid of his pain or shed the nasty skin. You will have to let me undress you, says Aslan. So desperate was he that even the fear of Aslan's claws was not enough to stop him. So he lays down. And this is what C.S. Lewis says. Eustace, this is what Eustace was thinking. The very tear, the very first tear he made was so deep I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the nasty stuff come off. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off just as I thought I'd done myself those three times. And when I did it, it hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass. Only it was so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And then there was I, as soft and smooth as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much because I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me in the water. 
and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And I saw, as soon as I started swimming and splashing, the pain had gone from my arm. And I saw why, because I turned into a boy again. And after a bit, the lion came and dressed me in new clothes. Well, you see, the only way to deal with this guilt that we have is not to avoid it, but to resolve it. And Eustace had to realize he couldn't get his own skin off. And that only God could come, and, and you too, only God can come and take that skin off. And to do this, you must let him pierce deep. And we meet, must... Um, Take all the guilt on ourselves, and stop blame shifting and just take responsibility for what we've done wrong. Um, I loved this testimony written by a girl named Luma Sims. She was born in Iraq, and one of the first English books she received was the Narnia series. And at age nine, she read this book, and this is what she said. I looked my sin in the face, and I too was a dragon, an ugly, nasty, snake-skinned creature, deep in self-made misery, and I was lonely, and I was so fearful. But because of the grace of God, the Lion of Judah beckoned me to the garden built on the mountain and to that well of living water. Guys, Jehovah Medicashem is doing the work to sanctify us. And he's doing the work to make us holy. And we know he has many tools in his toolbox of sanctification. We talked last week about trials. We talked this week about his word. And his word is one of the tools by which we grow up in our salvation. I'm watching one of my children right now go through a time of pain. And I am praying with watchful eyes for the fruit of holiness to be produced. Before we were born, C.S. Lewis says, when we were inside our mother's bodies, we passed through various stages. We were once rather like vegetables, and then we looked rather like fish. It was only in that later stage we became like human babies. And if we had been conscious at those earlier stages, I dare say we should have been quite contented to stay like vegetables or fish and should not have even wanted to be made into babies. But all the time he knew his plan for us and he was determined to carry it out. Something the same is now happening to us at a much higher level. So, what are obedient children like? In conclusion, obedient children fear their father. If we look to verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, let's face it, guys. There's a lot more fear of daddy than there is of mommy. As I was told this week, 
Mommy's spankings make us laugh and daddy's spankings make us cry. So will you give me the spanking, Mom? Um, jokes aside, this sort of fear we're talking about is also deeply connected to trust. We have to take all that we've learned and know about the Father. Nothing bothers him about us when we're in his presence because of our ransom. He's given, us, given himself a name that says, I'm the one that's making you holy. So this kind of fear for a good father is actually the kind of fear that says, instead of running away from him, I actually need to run straight towards him because he's my only safe place. Ladies, let's be like obedient children. Let's love the things that our Father does. Let's resemble Him by growing in our otherness like He is other. Let's know His name. This was a new name that I learned this week about God. Did you know that name of God? Let's live in fear plus trust of our good, good father. You know, there once was a truly obedient child. And this child wasn't conformed at all to the passions of this world. This child loved what his father loved. He actually was holy in all of his conduct and totally resembled his father. He knew his name and he feared and trusted him. But you know what this obedient child said? This obedient child said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? I cry out, but you do not answer. I find no rest. Because you see, God the Father forsook the obedient child. And he turned his face away from the obedient child. And he did not answer him when he cried out on the cross. Why? So these disobedient children could be remade into obedient children. We ended this week with that verse. This is the good news that was preached to you. And that, ladies, is good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we are your adopted children. And you've brought us into your family. And please work in our lives and let us surrender to the ways that you are making us holy. Give us eyes that see, ears to hear. And may we recognize that you are making us into something that we couldn't have ever made ourselves. We trust that you are near 
And we want to grow in our fear and our trust of you. In your name we pray. Amen.